very much through my colleagues in the industry is every sample is a human a patient a loved one my friends your friends uh, people you know will have probably been tested using things that i've done and my team has done and my organization has done to help them navigate their own healthcare journey and, and the proximity even as a tube every tube is a person asking a question they're fearful they are, am I okay? You know, we, we, we do no harm. Beneficence, we, we, we do our best for that patient. And it gets even deeper than that. Welcome to the BioTalk Unzipped podcast, where we unzip the stories behind medical progress by sharing the latest and greatest advances in biopharmaceuticals and medical technologies in a fun, entertaining, and enlightening format. And now your co-hosts, Gregory Austin and Dr. Chad Briscoe. Hello and welcome to BioTalk Unzipped, where we unzip, unlock, and uncover the stories behind medical progress. I'm your host, Gregory Austin, a biotech science enthusiast, along with me from North Carolina is my excellent co-host, Dr. Chad Briscoe, a biotech scientific expert, and we publish BioTalk Unzipped twice a month and bring experts from different corners of the pharmaceutical, biotech, or med device worlds to share their innovations, insights, career journeys, and personal stories to the show. On this episode, episode seven, we are bringing in Dr. Russell Grant, VP of Research and Development at LabCorp to the stage. Dr. Russell Grant earned a PhD in chromatographic and mass spectrometric technologies from the University of Swansea, Wales, United Kingdom. He continued his scientific training in various industrial settings, which, had, which have included senior scientists at GSK, principal scientist at Cohesive Technologies, technical director at Eli Lilly, and Director of Mass Spectrometry at Esoterics Endocrinology. When Esoterics was acquired by Covance and later LabCorp, Russ's impact grew over the years as he rose to his current role as VP of Research and Development at LabCorp. Russ has pioneered the use of direct injection technologies, chromatographic systems multiplexing, utility of automation, and new analytical platforms for application and bioanalytical applications. His research goals are focused upon improvements in speed, sensitivity, and quality of liquid chromatography with tandem mass spectrometric analytical systems and assays. Leveraging his knowledge of mass spectrometry and passion for perfection, he has been at the forefront of implementing mass spectrometry and clinical analysis. Dr. Grant serves as clinical chemistry chair for American Society of Mass Spectrometry and is a member of the American Association for Clinical Chemistry. In addition to his exceptional career contributions within his companies, Russ is also a gifted science communicator. He's a highly sought after speaker at regional and international meetings where attendees come for both leading edge science and strong opinions delivered in an entertaining manner. I think today's discussion will certainly be evidence of that. Wow, that's a setup. Thank you, Chad. Welcome, welcome, Russ. How are you? I am good, gentlemen and, and viewers. Uh, how are you, gentlemen? Doing Very great, good. Thanks. Yeah, looking forward to diving into it. Yeah, I might just clarify a few things. So esoteric endocrinology was acquired by LabCorp, which also acquired uh, Covan. So the sequence there was a little ah, different. Yeah, um, okay. But, but yeah, um, jumped into diagnostics 20 years ago after about eight years in pharma. So. And, and that that was actually one of the things I wanted to explore with you, Russ, and it was, it was maybe down the list a little bit, since, but since we, uh, since we popped into it there, um, Talk to me a little bit about that because I, I think I first came to knew you know you back I don't know ninety nine or two thousand mm -hmm. there was you know one of the ASMS meetings mm -hmm. you were still in bioanalytics there mm -hmm. moved into cohesive I knew you a little bit there and then and then at some point yeah you made that jump into diagnostics T tell us about that a little bit because I've never really heard that story from you 
yeah so you know i was it goes a ways back but as a child i i was just enamored with american television cop shows and things like that and so i, I always wanted to flee the the nest and and go as far and as high as possible which made me realize a couple of things i needed to do something that was unique and and put myself in positions where i was uncomfortable to to uh, grasp those opportunities i worked in pharma uh, for two great pharmaceutical companies uh, smith klein and lilly um, as a journey smith klein in the uk eli lilly in toronto but i was always coming to america and canada was a wonderful hybrid um, society for my wife at the time um, still my wife thankfully uh, and i and uh and i actually did 16 job interviews in the united states and i got 16 job offers now i don't think i was that good i think i was just perhaps a little cheap but either way, um, 15 in pharma biotech and then this one in clinical diagnostics at Esoterics. And it was in um, Thousand Oaks, which was just down the road from Amgen. I also got an opportunity with Amgen. But I thought, you know, 95% of every drug I ever worked on, well, that time and effort was on a drug that didn't make it. And I worked on a few that made it, so kind of rare. Uh, I thought, maybe let's pivot that equation and just see if clinical diagnostics was the right fit for fit for me to do the right fit for me to do something interesting and so i made that jump and uh frankly i i haven't looked back i'm i'm almost zealous in my energy uh, and desire to use the tools not just mass spec but you know flow and immunoassay and automation to drive uh, these sort of high-end analytical workflows for patient care I'm, I'm just zealous about it um so it was it was taking a jump knowing that there was a security blanket because i'd done well in the interview process but really trying sure. to figure out do i do i want to spend my time in a world where methyl ethyl propyl futile was was the iteration in chemistry and, and i mean no, no disrespect they were great companies to work for sure but now in pharma 95 percent of every project or program or, or workflow that I've ever put my time and my team's energy towards makes it to uh, to clinical care. So it's a complete pivot for energy. But yeah, I was always coming to America and I just wanted a massive roll of the dice after uh, working in pharma for a while, Chad. So, so Russ, you know, we do, we try to balance between getting too deep in the science here and, and having it accessible to, uh, to others. But, but one of the areas that you uh, you really educated me on, and I, and I would say, um, you know, a few others, but is that difference between bioanalytical for clinical trials and, and applications of mass spec and, and bioanalytical for clinical trials versus, uh, versus in uh, 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 clinical and healthcare and the applications you've been working on with esoterics and, and with LabCorp over the years? Can you just, in a nutshell, kind of sum, sum some of that up uh, for us? Oof, that's that's a good one. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, you know, we we grew up with the iterations of the bioanalytical method validation guidance, mm -hmm. the Crystal City meetings, and that put some pretty quality, good quality guardrails around how we would develop uh, assays for exogenous therapeutics, things like that. When I stepped over into uh, clinical diagnostics, twenty. 22 years ago now uh, it was all about endogenous analysis which was a whole new sort of problematic field mm -hmm. generation of calibrators um, spike and recovery studies when it's an analyte that's on board uh, so that the actual technical challenges to create 
externally calibrated, internally standardized assays were initially following the, the GLP, uh, Biological Method Validation Guidance. But pretty quickly, uh, I learned that there is a whole slew of additional uh, workflows following the uh, Clinical Lab Standards Institute or CLSI guidance uh, workflows for any clinical uh, uh, applied test, if you like, for direct patient care. So I got deeper into when was a mass spectrometer telling me the truth and telling me lies for endogenous uh, analyte measures uh, and a whole slew of different statistical ways of thinking about error as a total error, a component of bias and imprecision. And then what is the distribution in normal and then abnormal and the separation of those states. So it really just deconvolved what I thought mass spectrometry was fit for, what we could use it for and what the guardrails were of accuracy and imprecision, as we know from GLP guidance back into that may not be good enough or it may be too narrow based on the, uh, the distribution of biomarkers in uh, in a disease in a healthy state, but that's a gradation. So uh, it was a good starting point. Uh, certainly, the documentation standard and the accuracy standard as mm -hmm. the as a as a foundation to start from was a great place from from drug development BMV. But moving into diagnostics, you have to take a lot more into consideration. Probably the most challenging is that we are not controlling the population. In fact, quite the reverse. Uh, it's an anybody, any time, any state of health, and and the markers that we've generally started, I started certainly working on, uh, have it, interferences, concomitant drugs, metabolites, new drugs on markets creating new metabolites to create new selectivity issues. So the assays were never finished, and selectivity was the biggest biggest challenge, I think. Yeah, and I think one of the things you pointed out to me once, you were talking about an assay that was really challenging. I can't remember the assay, but I think. I think you told me you were working to save seven seconds per injection and, and in the clinical, in the bioanalytical for, for clinical trials of seven seconds, you know, big deal. That's just the difference in a needle wash or something like that. You know, we're doing a thousand samples. It doesn't really add up that much, but it, but it really, it struck me because of the numbers. Tell me about the, the numbers of assays you're doing, whereas a lab laboratory like the one I work at, you know, we're talking a few thousand samples, uh, you know, per, per study. Yeah, so uh, probably a good idea for me to reflect on the biggest clinical study I ever did uh, was uh, around the uh, phase two, phase three clinical mm -hmm. studies at SmithKline. And that was around about 45,000 specimens. Mm -hmm. Massive study. Massive. Massive. Uh, we have assays that run on one or two mass spectrometers here that do more than 10 times that in the same time frame. So the clinical study ran for 18 months, although the analytics was about 10, 11 months of that. We, yeah. we, we are 10 times that number uh, on LCMS MS here per year. And, and that assay has remained unchanged for 12 years. Okay. Multiple sites running multiple instruments, but, but literally four, 400,000 samples for that assay a year. And a lot of the pressure is the turnaround time. So trying to turn that data around back to the clinician and the treating physician uh, as fast as possible, 24, 48 hours from from draw, a little challenging when you know we have sites, you know, scattered through the United States and ex-US shipping samples in. But yeah, the the scale is is 10x easily. And and when you think about that, and then the longevity of these assays uh, that we have to support, we have to really think about robustness. And all seconds matter because that's scalability. That's multiple instrumentation platforms to support that volume, which, again, uh, continues to grow, particularly post-COVID, as, as people 
um, are, are, are stepping back into their healthcare journey, and we're you know we're starting to see people be a little bit sicker, uh, unfortunately, from taking a little bit maybe a hiatus from the wellness or even the yeah. you know the lingering effects of course of covid so the scale is about 10x and the longevity of these assays can be 10 or 20 years amazing just so different and i remember the assay it was the assay was testosterone okay yeah i'm sure it was yep mm -hmm. no, i had a feeling you'd be like chad i remember that conversation so mm -hmm. um so so you segued actually into something i want to ask you about as well so so thanks for that covid uh I don't really know what role you might have played in COVID, but, I, but I'm thinking you're at LabCorp. I think it's well known that LabCorp certainly played an absolutely uh, pivotal role in, uh, in COVID and uh, detection. But what is a mass spectrometrist leading that research? What was, what, what was your involvement and what did you guys do to answer the tough questions? Not what mass spectrometry. Well, first of all, not mass spectrometry because it's simply not fast enough. Um, so a, a couple of things I would like to just comment. I, I think across the continuum, uh, of health and care, right the way from physicians and nurses and, and point of contact and collection, right the way through to even pharmaceutical companies opening up their research to, to each other and trying to solve for an, an awful time. I think as an industry, it, it is our Mount Everest. I hope we don't have another one in my lifetime. It was really challenging. LabCorp was fortunate enough to, uh, to step forward uh, along with many other major laboratories. Uh, we had the first uh, FDA EUA approved assay for self-collection using um, PCR. So not mass spec, PCR and some really elegant automated workflows. I actually worked on the serology side. So I was working on microsampling for uh, anti antibody or an uh, antigen a little bit, but mostly antibody because we thought maybe antibodies could, could mean something. Of course, the, you know, the, the virus mutated. So the antibodies sort of changed over time, uh, went through a couple of uh, a couple of publications, I think you'll see out there using microsampling to track native versus immunological response from uh, from vaccination. Uh, so my, my part was was certainly more on the serology side. Um, we uh, opened up the people from the team to support uncrating boxes. I mean, at, at, our, at our highest volume, we didn't have enough people to actually open boxes because every sample was its own unique container. Um, I think yeah. we're on record of somewhere in the region of 350 to 400,000 samples a day. God, wow. Um, and so we, you know, in the facility yeah. I'm in, we were, we were actually uh, hiring um, day labor to literally open boxes and our leadership wow. came through and they would open boxes to all the lab, uh, lab professionals who could run uh, the analytical workflows were seconded uh, there. It was, uh, it was a very, very mm -hmm. tough, but an incredible time for the industry yeah. as a whole yeah. to really pull together. Mm -hmm. But it was, a, it was one of the most challenging environments and times I think I've ever seen, um, uh, again, LabCorp and other big um, diagnostic companies and the, the startups we saw really did step up to the mark there. And, and we did an incredible thing, an incredible thing as a community and one of those proud moments that I don't want to do again. Yeah, yeah, right. well, well put. Very good. Well, Chad, are we ready to get into our new news segment? Let's do it. New news. New news. New news. So did you know, and Russ, this is actually a, a former company of yours, that uh, according to Fierce Biotech uh, that reported on January 23rd that Eli Lilly successfully restored hearing in an 11-year-old child who had been deaf from birth. 
And, and this test was specific to people with mutations to the autoferrolin gene. And uh, so it's hearing loss by any other means that, that cell gene therapy wouldn't necessarily help. But this is an amazing result, restoring hearing to an 11 year old kid who has never heard anything before. Have you heard about this? And what do you think? Personally, no, but I'm certainly going to uh, check that out. And I hope one of the first things that he heard was the intro solo from Shine On You Crazy Diamond by David Gilmore. Because <laughs> because that, to me, is perfect right. tonality. But I will certainly be checking out that. Amazing. Yeah, and we'll post links. Uh, we'll post links below, mm-hmm. uh, you know, below the, uh, the, the, the podcast and YouTube, I'm sure Greg will, Greg will put that up there with the story. There was a story on fears, but uh, it, it, it is uh, phenomenal. It's, it's uh, what we do in this industry. You know, you talked about in COVID, you know, how we all came together and did an amazing thing. And then you think about the years and the, and the shoulders of giant upon giant that we, you know, we as an industry uh, had to stand on to have yeah. something like that accomplished. Right. And, yeah. and uh, it, it's just phenomenal. I, I can't even imagine what a, what a child who's hearing, I mean, what, what is right. that to hear for I, the first time? So I wish yeah. I could have seen, and, and I don't, you know, maybe they videotaped it. Maybe they didn't, you know, they didn't want it to be public or whatever, but could you imagine the look on that child's face, but hearing something for the very first time had to be just unreal. Oh yes. I mean, just to the overwhelming sensation that one could imagine. I mean, you can't imagine. We literally cannot imagine that. Mm-hmm. I've certainly done immersions in pools where everything's sort of, closed off a bit like you know tommy from the from the movie everything is black and you can't hear anything except you know the dull third of your heart but even that's noise so yeah that would that would be phenomenal i'll be checking on that yeah yeah Yeah. and and i think that's the the promise of cell and gene therapy the things that uh, we can do that we never thought possible so it's pretty exciting now russ after you earned your your phd in wales uh, in chromatography chromatographic mm-hmm. and, and mass spec technologies. Mm-hmm. Did you did you fancy yourself moving to America? Was that always part of the plan? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, from before I went to college. In fact, when I was 19, I think it was, I was playing university college soccer football, um, the real one. Um, and uh, <laughs> somebody gave me Craig Whitehouse's paper with regard, which showed electrospray of proteins and peptides. So I kind of knew, oh, it's going to mm-hmm. be mass spectrometry. Um, John Bynan and then Di Games had gone to Swansea. So I went from Cardiff to Swansea and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. I broke virtually every instrument I touched for the first six months. I learned how to fix every instrument I touched for the next six months. And I actually had a very soul searching moment. I, w- I was practically quite incompetent, technically not very strong. I immersed myself in the literature for a good six months. I'm like, well, I'm going to learn all about the theory of how these things work. I can kind of fix them. I can certainly break them. Um, and then try and really work on the application of extraction, separation, and mass spectrometry, and just try to combine those those things together. So that was what I did. And uh, I realized that I think at the time that mass spectrometry was on the up, so that would be a, a you know a, a rocket for me to get across the pond. Uh, I jumped onto the SciX3 Plus. I saw that particular instrument as being you know potentially a legendary, and it did turn out to be a legendary instrument in bioanalysis. So I saw the writing on the wall for the right mass spectrometer to work on. I was working on a different platform at college. Um, got into GLP, got into CFR Part you know 11, got into regulated bioanalysis, made the transition to to Canada. So I, I took a few risks but but educated risks i think on that stepwise journey of of what am i going to be good at and what are going to be enablers for me on that journey but make the biggest 
the biggest sort of roll of the dice was to leave my entire family except my new wife behind and walk across and well fly across the pond um, and just see how high could I go. I actually did a, an undergrad year, my third year at 3M uh, in London to uh, ask myself the question, do I go out of undergrad or do I get letters? And I've, I saw very, very quickly, if you didn't have letters, the glass ceiling would squish me down. And I was the first one from all both sides of my family to go to university. I didn't want a glass ceiling. So I realized I needed a PhD. I realized at Swansea, I had access to lots of technologies to get breadth and some depth. I realized that Psyx 3 Plus would be an enabler for me. I realized drug development was evolving through um, through the use of the Psyx 3 Plus. I realized I needed to uh, become au fait with those uh, approaches. I worked for two wonderful companies in SmithKline and, and Eli Lilly, uh, and then jumped out of the industry for a bit uh, into diagnostics. And frankly, I, I, I can't go back. I love this industry. I love what we do. And, and you mentioned that earlier, you became zealous for diagnostics. Yeah. What, what made you zealous? What keeps you zealous for diagnostics? Uh, I have had the privilege and the pleasure of interacting with patients uh, whose diagnosis has been enabled by my work. Many, uh, particularly when I was at Esoterics uh, working with pediatricians and pediatric endocrinologists and meeting families, mothers, fathers, siblings, that the patients themselves that I've, that I've certainly developed assays to support clinical diagnosis. And when you meet the first person that you've had a positive impact on, it changes you. When you meet the 10th, it still changes you when you meet the 50th. It's just, you, I, I, I went home, I think a couple of times and just sat out on my porch with a small glass of wine, just looking up at the stars and just thanking my, my guardian angel that there is a place yeah. in the world that I've been managed, you know, I've had the opportunity to sit in and, and take what I, my grab bag of skills um, and make a positive impact but it's that immediacy i think and that that, that proximity to the impact of your work it that really really changed me um and we, you know you're not trying to reduce the timeline uh for a drug to get to nda or ind you're, you're literally engaging back and forth with tricky clinical uh situations with with the profession every every results in immediate impact i mean that's that's what i'm hearing right so what yeah, yeah, and, and then and then and then meeting people that it helps and knowing knowing that it's going to make an impact. And I had a a similar experience when I when I first started working in flow cytometry, and and I'm by far no expert in flow, but uh, I remember we were running samples for a for a late phase trial, and and uh, you know the drug was at that point you know treating someone, and and the uh, the scientist in the lab said, "Hey, Chad, you know you want to understand flow better." He said, "Look at this." He said, "You know." this drug is to shift the cell population. You know, if it shifts it from here to here in this, you know, nice scatter plot that you see, that means that the drug is working on this person. And he, and he flipped through and he said, look, it's working, it's working, it's working. He got to like sample six and he said, didn't work with this person. I went, wow. And, it, and, and you have no idea who it is, you know, in that case, but you know, it's clearly, it's carried with me that experience that, wow, that, that drug, that, that last, line of defense didn't work for that person. But, you know, looking at the bright side, it did work for a number of other people and the drug went on. It was, I yeah. believe it was approved and it was quite successful, but uh, yeah, it's certainly was a, very a sobering. 
Yeah, exactly. I think a mantra that that we use that I hear very much through my colleagues in the industry is every sample is a human, a patient, a loved one. Mm -hmm. My friends, your friends, uh, people you know will have probably been tested using things that I've done and my team has done and my organization has done to yeah. help them navigate their own healthcare journey. And, yeah. and the proximity, even as a tube, Every tube is a person asking a question. They're fearful. They are. Am I okay? You know, we 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 do no harm. Beneficence. We 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 do our best for that patient. And it gets even deeper than that. I mean, we are one of the. I work for LabCorp, one of the biggest diagnostic companies. I think they're the biggest on the on the planet. And Quest Diagnostics, another wonderful big company. I've picked up the phone and talked to experts at Quest Diagnostics um, to get consultants and guidance and and some enablement. Uh, as a community, because we actually, it sounds, again, very zealous, but the patient first uh, mantra and mindset runs deep. And, and once you've been touched by that, it's 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 the probably the only compass point that, that one ever needs in their career to mm -hmm. to make sure that you, you stay focused on doing the right thing by the patient. So when you say zealous, yeah. I, I, I can't I can't think of any other way than doing the right thing for another human being. Many you'll never know, yeah. millions I'll never meet. But knowing that I've done my best within you know within the confines of a, a wonderful company, and enabling uh, the patient to get the best uh, outcome that we can provide them, and that kind of journey is one that I would pay every penny I've ever had to have again. That's awesome, and and it is so important. These diagnostics can literally be life saving. Uh, I was reading in one of your publications, uh, providing absolute certainty without absolute quantity, and you're <laughs> and you're you're testing the, um, I believe it's kidneys uh, for for certain kidney defects, and you could do it by just a blood sample, mm -hmm. which is pretty remarkable. And that way, people who may be receiving a kidney are receiving a kidney that is going to extend their life and not actually you know potentially kill them. So that is, I mean, that's remarkable and and really really yeah. Important. That's a, that's a very interesting one. So that one is for APOL1. Um, and fun, intriguingly, we have the genome that we know, and we have you know certain variants that lead to uh, potential concerns around kidney transplantation. We uh, the gene expresses for the protein with different you know SNPs in the uh, or different amino acid arrangements. We take that protein, we chop it up into small peptide pieces, infer the gene. Take that even further, they bleed on a blood spot card. We take that and we run that by mass spectrometry. So we're using protein fragments from digestion to define the protein to infer the gene. Hmm. So the, 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 the capability inside diagnostic medicine and the speed of evolution uh, is astounding. It's, it's I, astounding. I, what I we just can noticed do. that I'm sort of getting chills and I was sort of re, you know, readjusting myself. What a, you know, what a, what a nerd. <laughs> Because I'm just like, I'm it's, taking it in and I just, it's amazing. It, it does. It gives you chills, right? The things so, that we, you know, the things that we're working on now with, again, yeah. in neurology and, and oncology and, and CAR T and things like that, the speed of science is, it's, it's a little overwhelming, but actually with a really broad toolkit, which is certainly what I've tried to build in myself and, and, and my team members, we, we can get plugged into some fascinating technical challenges. Yeah. And as solid analytical scientists and analytical chemists, we bring a lot to the table in terms of reduction of, of bias and improvements in imprecision and workflow. It's it's a, a wonderful hybrid for us to just access these radically changing ideas and concepts and be able to be you know plugged in at any phase. It's great. 
Have I sold it? Have I sold you on it yet, guys? (laughs) I was sold (laughs) 15 years ago when we had these conversations. Okay, Russ, I I want to die. One of the things we do is I ask an unzipped question, right? This is one where I really... This is one where I want to get a little controversial, and uh, and and so you're ripping my heart out one way, and what I'm going to ask you rips my heart out in another way. But uh, having known you and and had the pleasure of so many talks and so many conversations, you're always cl- quoting literature. You know, th- th- this guy and, and that guy, and, and this paper, and you check this out, and then and then send me the paper. And, and one of the things that I have been following lately is uh it's generally is generally academic fraud but it's really about fraud in publications and scientific publications and, there, and there's that uh sort of uh balanced against um the recent oh the recent i don't know t- wave against science in the in the in the in the news and and things like that and, and it and it rips my heart out and so so i really i want you to unzip this because you're a guy who relies so heavily on literature what what can we do about this as scientists and how are you how are you dealing with it uh so i was thinking about this question somebody was asking me about why i do so much repetition why i do imprecision and repetition and multiple instrument comparators and multiple people and add those variances uh there's there's a funny quote i i know i don't even know who to attribute it to Uh, a mass spectrometrist does an experiment once a biologist will do it twice and an engineer will repeat and repeat and repeat until they give you the mean free time to failure and i have an engineering background so for me the repeatability uh, of experimentation is really key um, and not overselling the uh, initial hypothesis and the initial conclusions. Um, Ian Wilson, who was a, uh, somebody who worked for me during my uh, PhD, he was an external uh, professor that I, I lent heavily on uh, Dr. Wilson, taught me that a, a good scientist tries to disprove their first conclusion. A great scientist tries to disprove it with a different methodology and a world-class scientist is always trying to disprove their conclusions. I think we take the the CSI effect of a quick and easy answer mm-hmm. from a mass spectrometer that's off the screen that they're going to squirt something into and it's given a magic result and we, we present perhaps science as being a magic black box and it isn't. Uh, I think the scientific method, uh, as, as given to us by, uh, you know, the methodologies of Roger Bacon and uh, Isaac Newton, uh, are tried and tested. We do need to couch the conclusions we make with appropriate skepticism, but we're running against, you know, a media engine that that is in overdose with CSI and, and these crime shows. For me, reproducibility and repeatability uh, in multiple settings in the multiple laboratories are key to taking a hypothesis to a rule to a law the scientific laws that we that we honor and it's the hypothesis testing and repeatability that is the, the gap that we see again the scope and speed of science doesn't help us uh, as there's so many people doing so many things there's a there's interesting conversations going on right now in lipid analysis space trying to define when is a peak a peak and not noise i.e have i detected something versus not because those have not been repeated that's i'm aware of that going off in the literature and i'm in in, in lipidomics discussions societies around when is a peak actually a peak and not yeah. manipulated noise um Repeatability is not sexy. There's no funding for repeatability or reproducibility. There's there's funding for hypothesis generation, and and which is the Roger Bacon mode to open up new ideas of hypothesis and thinking. But there is a limited funding vehicle for reproducibility and repeatability. Um, to me, that's that's a fundamental funding gap uh, to 
remove the noise and really amplify the signal or get into repeatability. One of the things that I realized in my PhD when I had my sort of moments of thinking uh, what what is the right way to move ahead in my career is to prove that I could repeat, 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 repeat. And in diagnostic medicine, we have multiple instruments, multiple assays, multiple facilities. We do round robin comparators, you know, monthly or, um, and six monthly for most of the tests that are available to us. And if we can't do a round robin with an, an external body providing specimens for those ring, ring trials or round robin trials, we work with other diagnostic companies to switch calibrators and switch samples to make sure we at least agree with each other. So there's a lot of alignment in the diagnostic industry uh, uh, just by design under clear. Uh, but it's the repeatability and the funding's not, not there to repeat there, uh, Chad. It's it's yeah. it's not the sexy stuff that that gets, you know, the top eight, ten percent funding dollars paid out. Thank you for listening to the BioTalk Unzipped podcast. This concludes episode seven and part one of our conversation with the wonderful Dr. Russell Grant. Tune in on March 15th for episode eight and part two of our conversation with Russ. Until next time, be well.